This week on the Virtualcast, we talk about Apple earnings, the iPad at 10, what Google is doing with the design of search, and a lot in the streaming wars. That's coming up now on the Virtualcast. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. What does the future look like? By melting business acumen and innovative technology, Deloitte can help you build the future only you can imagine. They can help engineer solutions for your business reality today and your vision for tomorrow to get you to a world where you don't just dream it, you build it. See how you can engineer advantage with Deloitte at Deloitte.com slash US slash engineering advantage. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Now we can start. Hello, and welcome to The Vergecast, the flagship podcast of web technologies. I feel like that's what it's always been. We just haven't, it's not a great marketing line. <laughs> the last defenders of the open web. Uh, I'm your friend, Eli. Paul Miller is here. Hello. And Dieter Bone is here. I'm that guy who uh, you know you've met and you rec- know his face, but you can't remember his name. That's mm. who I am today. That's rough, Dieter. Yeah. I want you to, we gotta, we're going to pump you up. <laughs> We're going to figure out how. <laughs> no, it's, it's great to be that guy. It's like everyone knows you, but no one really knows you. You're mysterious. I don't. I, I, I haven't really experienced that in my life. Yeah. I'm the person who vaguely remembers everyone, but can't remember their name. Mm. So I'm just full of gambits that are like, how do I get you to say your name? There is a Dieterbone go- doppelganger working in an Apple store in like 10 cities around the country. And people will like just DM me about it randomly all the time. Well, because because your face is in malls across the country. That's true. My face is in malls across. Uh, the if, if you don't know this, uh, uh, the Vox Media signed a deal to syndicate our reviews videos to like a shopping mall TV network, which is great. I mean, I, I love I love it. I just like the concept of that is great. Again, you know, eight years ago we had zero million uniques, and now Dieter's face is in shopping malls across the country. But it means that we often get. Pictures of Dieter's face being like, here's a Chromebook like, in a shopping mall. No, it, it's it's in the shopping mall in my hometown. And so, like, people that I literally haven't talked to in high school will just hit me up and be like, what the hell, man? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, that's amazing. Uh, I told you my my great hope for AR glasses. I, I decided that AR glasses are, are fundamentally a terrifying technology. Yeah. But I want them. Uh, because I like cool so things. So you can see my face everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Dieter's face in all malls. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a great, yeah, the what AR glasses platform is going to be open enough for me to install that plugin into it? No, I want to be able to have glasses that show me everybody's name. That's it. Oh, yeah. It's a killer app for AR glasses. It's just remind, like telling you who people are so you don't seem like a jerk. To enable that, the one thing I want, you need a massive database of people's faces and names, uh-huh. which seems extremely problematic. Open real-time facial recognition. Yeah, yeah open yeah. real-time. Fa- like, okay, that seems like mm-hmm. I'll get some benefit out of it, but every villain, like literally every supervillain in the world will get more benefit out of it yeah. than me. In Moscow, the police department just launched real-time facial recognition across the city. So 
does everybody know each other's name? I mean, at least give the people that. You're going to surveil them to death. Like, there's like a push notification. The police are like, found this person, right? Yeah. That's I my guess. understanding. Like, everyone's know. phone, like an Amber Alert? To, to the police. Yeah. That we found this person because Neilai looked at them with his AR glasses. No. <laughs> no, no, no. You meet the person, you meet them, they introduce themselves. At that point, your glasses and your glasses only learn their name, and it does not shared. It's not exfiltrated. Yeah, but then you would need like, you'd be like, can you uh, real quick grow a mustache and put on glasses so that the next time I see you, the model is accurate? That's the problem. Ah. Uh. Speaking of people who've grown a beard, Neil Young. See, I did. <laughs> I was going to do a searching for a heart of gold thing here. That was what I was going for. Uh, so it is. Uh, I just want to talk about this for two minutes before we talk about all the news. Uh, we do an interview show every week. This week, our, the interview publishers with Neil Young. Two things I'll say. One, uh, I had like half forgotten because we, we recorded the interviews like weeks ahead of time. Yeah. Especially around the holidays and CS. Like we just have lots of them banked up. That's why we've been doing a couple a week lately because uh, we, we, we want to be current, but we still we, we don't want to overload people. So it's a hard balance. So I'd like half forgotten that Neil Young had yelled at me for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when it happened. Like if you listen to the episode, I'm like laughing all the time because Andrew, our producer, is like in the next room and I was just staring at him the whole time being like, is this currently happening? <laughs> like it was just like taken aback. Was he yelling or was he yelling at you? It's unclear from the audio. This is well. This is the other thing I want to point out. Like the problem with being the interviewer is that you have to, to be somewhat dumber than you normally are because you you need the other person to talk. Sure. So I'd read his book. I, I I know what he wants to say, but I need to get him to say it to me because it's an interview. Sure. Yeah. So a lot of my questions were like, "How does sound quality work?" Which, if you listen to the Vergecast, you know that I have extremely <laughs> set opinions about sound quality. Uh, so a lot of my questions were just like. Do you think MacBooks are bad? I, I know what he, I, I knew I knew what he was going to say. So there's like just like a little play acting component, and it's just he kept getting madder and madder. And I I was just trying to calibrate like where do yeah. I where do I agree with you? Here's what I will say about that interview. Having said all of that, right? I want to be respectful of the guests. Want to let he's Neil Young. He's yeah. right. I, I want to be respectful to literally a legend of of the culture, but he is extremely wrong, and I just want to put that out there. I want the audience to know that I think Neil Young's idea about analog audio always being superior to digital audio is fundamentally wrong. Like, just on its face wrong. I get what he's saying about sampling and you know, quantization errors not getting a hold of it. I buy all that. I understand yep. it. But when he's like, a cassette tape sounds yeah. better than any digital file because you can feel it. I'm like, no, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. It just does not, Neil Young. But he was so mad at me <laughs> that I, <laughs> I didn't have, I really have an opportunity uh, to say that and get that across. And also, I don't, I don't think that he would have um, listened, I think is the mm. word. But I think what he was getting at, what he continues to get at, and what I do believe is that we often, especially in audio, because you cannot, there's no objective way for two people to compare it the way that I can show you a picture or look at a screen. Uh, you just cannot compare hearing that way. It just doesn't exist. He's not wrong that we often trade convenience for quality. Mm -hmm. I just don't think that like cassette singles represented any sort of peak of audio quality. And you know, like vinyl has actually a pretty low dynamic range. Like it's a physical medium yeah. that degrades over time and you can only cut the grooves so low and like 
Um, actually, the you know, if you ever plug the wrong thing into the phono input on a amp, like it sounds all weird. Yeah, it's because the dynamic range of a record is modified so it can be cut physically into a groove, and then it goes through something called the RAA curve inside the phono amp in the phono stage to come back to a normal one. Like that's a lot of analog processing and compensation for the limits of the medium. You do that with digital too. You just do it in a different way. So, yeah. Anyway, it was very entertaining. I'm glad everyone had a good time. Many people have tweeted me about it. Uh, you know, I, I think a, a sign of a good interview is like when half the people are like, Neil Young is right. And then half the people are like, you are dummy. <laughs> like, <laughs> sure. Like, I, I'm glad we're all talking about sound quality again. For the record, I do not think the MacBook Pro has Fisher Price audio quality. I think that's it's what you put in, what you get out. And I think the on bound, like Billie Eilish just won every Grammy, I think. It was every single yeah. one. Uh, unprecedented achievement. <laughs> um, <laughs> but she, she like, made that music in her bedroom using consumer tools and Logic X. Like, you know, there's, there's good and bad. Neil doesn't agree with me. It's okay. <laughs> it's, it was, but it's, like, amazing to wake up on, like, Tuesday morning and be like, oh, the Neil Young interview hit. <laughs> Woo, here we go. <laughs> All right. Speaking of Apple, lots of Apple news this week. Do you want to start with history or do you want to start with earnings? Oh, we should just start with earnings real quick. <laughs> Apple made all the money. They did mm-hmm. make all of the money. I would say there's two things. I mean, they set a record. The iPhone 11 and 11 Pro did really well. Sales records, numbers. I think the big news for me is that their wearables category is soaring. Yep. So the Apple Watch uh, AirPods are obviously a hit. The services line was a little down. That was the news to me, is you would expect after spending literally the entire year not being able to form a complete sentence without using the word services that this quarter or some there would be some kind of major growth there and instead it's just sort of a shruggy now a lot of this is there's still like i don't know how much money they're getting from Verizon for that Apple Music deal i don't know if they're just not banking any revenue yet from people everybody that's getting the free subscription to Apple TV plus you know Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Maybe this stuff is sort of a, a, a slow build, and then bang, it hits. But I was expecting them to be be clocking in a lot more money. And one of the possible, I don't know, analyses here is the idea that Apple is going to be able to extract more value out of its current user base is maybe not obvious. Maybe not obviously true. It may actually be harder than they think to get people to pay them extra money and when you know and when they're using a 4-year-old phone or whatever. Yeah, so it's a uh, well, it's harder for uh, the services is not an obvious slam dunk way for Apple to make more money with the same customers, but AirPods is. Yeah. Well, an Apple Watch too, actually. They they couldn't make enough Apple Watch 3 Series 3s, right? Yeah, it's $200 and it's like the easiest gift in the world to buy. This my continue to be my theory of Apple. Like if they can just make the thing at the holiday that you can buy a loved one that you don't really know anything about. Yeah. You know, like, ah, hey, you're 15. Here are some AirPods. I love you. Right? Like, <laughs> that's like, it's a slam dunk for them every time they pull it off. And if you really love them, you get a poop emoji engraved on it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I just, like, I was very uh, impressed this year on TikTok that AirPods were the demarcation line between rich and poor. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but that's like, that's been a meme for a long time, right? Yeah, but it's still a meme, and it's very important. Yeah, but look, they have AirPods Pro, and they'll put out some new ones, and then we'll keep the old ones around at, you know, at, at uh, one twenty nine. Like they're going to keep pushing them down to just destroy the market. Mm-hmm. Which great, they should do it. 
I think that's just an easier sell. Like historically, where are they strong? They sell hardware at a premium. They make mm-hmm. a lot of money doing it. Every time they have a hit hardware product, it does really well for them. Mm-hmm. That's the nature of having a hit hardware product. The services piece that is way more streaky. Like if you think about the bulk of their services revenue, uh, and we've written this. Heim wrote it a while ago. It's all like in-app purchases and free-to-play games. Yeah, like, that's the money. That's all the money. It's like the there are two Candy Crush whales out there. That Tim Cook like keeps an eye on. Wait, App Store revenue counts as a service? Yep, yep. The App Store and in-app purchases in the App Store is, is by far the bulk of Apple services revenue. So that's great, right? But when you think of services, your instinct there to react that yeah, way it's was like upselling me on iCloud storage yep. and this mythical Apple television thing that I haven't really. Yeah, so I, I think they've got everybody thinking of iCloud, maybe not even iCloud storage, but they've got everybody thinking of Apple News and Apple Arcade, Apple TV, Apple Music. It, that's not it yet. Like Apple TV yeah. is not even real. It's like everyone has a free year. They're not even banking any money yet. Um, yeah. It's it's in-app purchases. So Candy that's Crush w- Wales. one thing. And then if you if you think about just the cost dynamics of the other stuff, mm-hmm. in-app purchases are just free money for Apple. Yeah. No one has <laughs> to make anything. Like game makers just have to like irritate you into pushing a button to do something, right? Uh, so there's no cost of production. So it's like a hundred percent profit. But Apple TV, they gotta they gotta hire Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon. They gotta find an elephant. They gotta follow the elephant around. Not Jennifer Aniston. That's another. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, yeah. The Muppets have to show up. They have to throw the Muppets a party for the premiere. They have to. Jason Momoa has to scowl. That's not free. <laughs> that show is so bad. <laughs> like someone has to pretend to Jason Momoa that his show is good. That's probably very expensive. And they got to do it again. And they got to yeah. market those shows. They got to do the Oscar screener. They got to do a whole thing that's very expensive for TV shows. They got to hire Richard Pupler. Yeah, they got to they got to hire the ex HBO guy um, for music, right? They they don't own the music, so they got to pay a bunch of license fees back out to the labels. They got to do the advertising for Apple Music, for Apple Arcade. No one knows how that works. Yeah, zero except for the, the game makers, and none of them are talking. So, do they pay up front? Do they pay per time spent? But they they still have to pay. They have a product that isn't just like you pay right. them five bucks a month, but. They have to put new games in it over and over and over again to make it worthwhile. Yeah. So they just tried to push a, a Fortnite competitor that's like kid friendly, uh, which is really fascinating because Microsoft in its earnings specifically said Xbox revenue was down because of Fortnite. How so? Actually, uh, because people were people were spending so much time in Fortnite, which is a, a game wherein Microsoft doesn't make money selling you games or selling you Microsoft, you know services, Xbox cloud services or whatever, that they made less money than they expected to in like their Xbox division. And their suspicion was it was a third party title, which is code for Fortnite. That's amazing. Yeah. That's not a suspicion. That's like a, they have absolute telemetry to know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they exactly. didn't. Yeah. Their average dollar per minute spent on the Xbox was down. Yeah. So there's a, there's a confluence of like two things that uh, we have been obsessed with in two different tracks. So on this show, we have been obsessed with the question of will Apple compromise user experience in order to make more money on services? And in Processor and in, in you know the newsletter and also on this, all this iPad stuff, I have been obsessed with the subtle ways that your behavior changes because of the way the user interface is constructed. And it all sort of crystallized for me with uh, this new version of Fantastical that just came out. Uh, because if you just think about the way that apps work, they are constrained in very specific ways by the rules that Apple has set up for the App Store. 
people getting pushed to subscription services. Everybody knows how in-app purchases and games are, you know, constructed in a certain way. The way that Apple doesn't allow you to admit that there's another way to subscribe to something outside of the Apple Store inside your app. Um, All of that stuff is a pressure that changes your experience that is completely invisible to you unless you are, like, really paying attention. And you have very few levers to actually change it or work on it. With a Apple TV Plus, you just choose not to subscribe. But with, you know, your apps and like what games are actually made in the first place, that's like a third order of effect of a change that, you know, decision Phil Schiller made two years ago. And that's a much harder thing to track down. That's really interesting of how many apps are like, okay, let's think of what app we can build. And like, well, no, there's no business model for that. There's no business model for that. There's an obvious business model for that. Okay, let's make a Candy Crush. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I think what's what's you brought up the TV one, what's particularly interesting about all of their services, but TV especially, is they know what the business model for the TV Plus service is. They're just not confident that it's going to work, so it's not the default. Because what they yep. really want is for the TV app to be the home screen of the Apple TV. And then you open it up, and it shows you a bunch of shows you can watch, and you subscribe to HBO inside of the TV app on the Apple TV for however much a month, and Apple takes a cut, Mm -hmm. right? And then every month, HBO gets billed, and Apple takes a cut. And then you're like, oh, I want to watch this whatever's on Showtime. I'm going to subscribe to Showtime on my Apple TV, and Apple gets a cut. And every month, Showtime bills you, and Apple takes a cut. They have that 100% profit button built into it. Right, it's in-app right. purchases in the TV, but instead of getting the next level in Candy Crush, you get HBO, and HBO bears yeah. its cost of making HBO shows or whatever. That is the model of the Amazon Fire TV. That's what it works. If you kind of zoom out and squint, you're like, oh, they're just making it the cable box everybody wanted, right? Where you, right. you plug in your cable box, you tell it exactly what channels you want, it bills you per channel, and off you go. They're just not confident because not everything is there that that can be the yep. default interface of the TV. You cannot right. subscribe to just full freight ESPN on that thing yet because Disney launched Disney Plus, right? right? Disney Plus won't give up the interface to Apple that way. It'll show you the shows inside of it, but it won't give mm-hmm. you the like actually subscribe here. So there's just like a lot of that going on. But you see at least the the model is there. We'll, we'll, we'll promote the morning show enough so that you open this app. Now we've shown you a bunch of other stuff. Maybe you're going to hit subscribe on HBO and we'll take some money. And that's actually a direct money. That is the business model for Windows 10 now. How's we that? will give you the OS for free, uh, and we will let we will let it work with as many apps as possible, and you know, blah 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 blah. We just hope that when you happen to open up Windows to do your computer stuff, you will subscribe to OneDrive or Microsoft 365. Yeah, but like, okay, that at least it makes sense. Like, I can t- I can explain to you how Apple intends to make money. Yeah, even though it's like it has Oprah on the payroll, right? Like. Ah, that seems expensive. How are they going to make that back at five bucks a month? It's like, oh, there's this other thing they want you to do. They right. want you to buy this other stuff that costs them no money or that is pure profit for them. Yep. But HBO is front end cost. What is that for the arcade? Like it implies that at some point they're just going to ruin Apple Arcade by asking you to buy stuff inside of it. Well, unless, unless uh, games are just cheaper in some way and so they actually can cover the cost with the five bucks a month or – Maybe they believe there's a spillover effect just by dint of being, you know, being an Apple Arcade, you might get something outside Apple Arcade. It is a little bit unclear. Like, there might be a second-order effect there. You're, you're not wrong. And then the other one is news, which seems like an unmitigated disaster. Like, it, didn't, it just didn't play. No one likes it. Yeah. It's, like, kind of too expensive, but it, 
if you're in the media, like this isn't expensive enough. I'm probably not going to make enough money here. Like that's why the Times isn't in it. Um, that's why the mm-hmm. Post isn't in it. And I think that's just one of those where it's like, what is the? They're going to split all this money with all these publishers. The publishers are just sort of cautious about it. Is it a real business for them, or is it just a thing they felt they had to do to complete this bundle? Like that. I think Paul, your point is like when you were surprised about it being the app store, that's the service. That's still the bulk of the services line. Mm-hmm. All this other stuff they've launched is totally unproven. Right. Well, in Arcade, it's interesting. Arcade is, in a sense, implicitly critical of, like, at least the game's revenue yeah. that they're getting traditionally. Yeah, there's no, like, no. massive upside, right? The the one person who's playing a Farmville who's going to spend $10,000 this week. Yeah. There's no Arcade Whale. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, all you can do is cost them money by buying and playing all the games. Right. And yeah. like splitting that even more finitely. But to well, your, the, the, go ahead. Sorry. The thing that undergirds all of this, or I don't know, it's like ambiently around is this all sounds like, oh, well, screw Apple services. Well, on the other hand, like you get trackless when you play an Apple arcade game than when you play a regular mobile game. You get trackless when you watch Apple TV than if you use another TV app or your smart TV. You get trackless if you use Apple News than if you use the web. Uh, so they, there are like these really, there are these privacy benefits and tracking benefits that um, Apple really wants to push and really are real, uh, but it's unclear, you know, the is, is Apple doing it because it's the right thing or because it also happens to hurt, like, Google's business model? And the answer is basically it's always both. both. Yeah. It's, yeah. Um, you know, I think implicit in that is it's, like, good to check our assumptions, right? And I think everyone's assumption is Apple sells the most phones. My assumption is they're going to ruin the user experience of the phone by pushing its services, uh, and they're going to—it's going to be a juggernaut, right? Mm-hmm. And that's sort of just like always—it's my—it's—it's it's just sort of my default assumption. Apple will be successful. It's a pretty safe default assumption. Like, if you control the user interface of the phone and you want everyone to open your news app, you can probably get them to do it, right? And they'll send you a million weird pop-up notifications that are like, "The Senate has reconvened," and it's like I don't. I, I know, like, mm-hmm. I actually wish I knew less, right? Like, but fine. And then you end up in the news app. I think the narrative is, like, maybe it's not working as well as we all assumed, right? Maybe that services revenue isn't, didn't grow the way that you thought it would this, this quarter because it's not as easy as they assumed it would be. Yeah. And that, I think, is a – we're just going to have to keep checking it. But it's, it's good to – it's a good reminder to me that, you know, the monopoly doesn't just always get what it wants, which is yeah. – many people constantly remind me of that, but it's – to actually see it play out, I think, is, 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 is useful. The important thing to keep an eye on is if we're right and these things aren't doing <clears> as well, will Apple just sort of go uh, and let them limp along and then they'll eventually die like mobile me and get replaced? Or will they, like, try to force it? And if they yeah. try to force it, that's the nightmare scenario. Yeah, great. I, you just took my positive and you turned it in. <laughs> literally, you literally said it's the nightmare. Uh, Okay, Paul, to your point about business models, this is a good way to segue into the iPad. Because the iPad turned 10 this week. Dieter wrote about it. Tom Warren wrote about it. Um, I thought the most the two most unexpected pieces I saw were from John Gruber, who said the iPad awkwardly turns 10. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Ben Thompson called it a tragedy. Uh, and both of them were pointing at the fact that the app ecosystem of the iPad has never had a, has never had a shot. Right, and it's because of these weird business model problems. It's because people think mobile apps should be cheap or whatever. But Dieter, I'm curious. I mean, you you've thought the most about the iPad as a computer of anyone in the world, I believe. <laughs> uh, I'm curious for your read on it. 
Well, so with regard to John Gruber's piece, I hate to say this, but uh, I told you so. I've been writing about how <laughs> weird and awkward the multitasking is on the iPad for a year or more, especially with iOS 13. Uh, I've written about how it's unintuitive in my particular definition of the word intuitive, which is easy to learn. Um, I've written about how it mixes the metaphors of time and space, um, you know, like all of that stuff. Um, I, but nevertheless, I'm still interested in the iPad because it's the only OS that's really trying to do something new with user experience, user interface on the screen right now. It really is. Um, so I'm not as angry about the foibles of how slideover works on the iPad as a lot of other people seem to have been on Twitter. But I am super worried about it as a computing ecosystem because the the thing that kills the iPad that actually makes it a tragedy is the value that you get for pushing through and learning all the weird ways that it works when you try and become an advanced user isn't high enough. The return on your investment of learning and time isn't enough to make it worthwhile. You might you're better off just using it as like a, you know, Netflix and reading machine and not trying to turn it into your computer. I think for a lot of people, people that have pushed through it and have gotten that return, I'm not saying you're wrong. If you are if you have made the iPad your main computer, good on you. But I, I think say you're that, wrong. I'm putting it out well, there. Well, there you go. <laughs> um, and then, you know, with the app ecosystem, I think the iPad got kneecapped by the decisions that were made early on to price apps at 99 cents, right? It's very, very difficult to convince people that they should spend a lot of money on pro apps for the iPad, especially when, you know, there's all these other like UI things uh, in front of it. And then on top of all of that, uh, the, the the truth about the iPad is you get – 96% of the experience by buying the $330 iPad that you do uh, when you buy the $1,300 iPad. Yeah. Like, you Like, for, for most people, there is functionally no difference between those two iPads. And I think that's, when I, when I think of the word tragedy, that's it, right? There's no app ecosystem that leverages the faster processor in the iPad Pro. So we mm -hmm. just bought Max, who is not yet two, an iPad, and put it in one of the big cases because yeah, it turns yeah. out baby it's easier to feed the baby uh when they're watching youtube and yeah just do that and she says fishies and we play finding dory and it is great and at 300 dollars, this is a perfect solution to a wide variety <laughs> of parenting problems so like okay there's that but we it, like within the same month we acquired the cheapest ipad that yep. is destined to be destroyed mm -hmm. and then I, I got an 11 inch ipad pro and like, yep, one's swipey and one has Face ID and one has whatever. But like, at the end of the day, they, they I, you could hand them to people without the home button. If you just took away the home button disparity, yeah, and you said which one's which, it would be really hard to tell them apart, right? Like, really hard from just I'm using this thing and I'm seeing apps open and close, like almost impossible. And I, mm -hmm. like, I try to push my iPad, I try to use it as a computer. And like the the app ecosystem of things that are hard to run is like kind of not there. Yeah. But at the same time, it is a great computer for the plane. It has almost entirely replaced my beloved 12-inch MacBook, which was my plane computer of choice for a long time. Yeah, I don't enjoy using any computer more than I enjoy using an iPad. I just hit that wall. Yeah. In the same way, yeah. The stand-up write-up for me was uh, Steven Sanofsky talking about the Microsoft reaction, which is really actually kind of in line what you guys were talking about. Microsoft thought that Apple, one, that Apple had to create a response to a netbook. And he has this amazing line about the 
origin of netbooks. We knew that netbooks and Atom were really just a way to make use of the struggling efforts to make low-power, fanless Intel chips for phones. (laughs) So, So Microsoft's over here like covering for the fact that Intel can't make a phone processor by yeah. making, you know, very popular, but very cheap, low power netbooks possible. That is and, a significant and- revision of history. <laughs> and like, that is a, you have to, you have to have lived in Redmond and only seen the world through the filters of Microsoft to believe that that is a hundred percent what happened. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, but, so, but through this filters of Microsoft, they're like, Oh, Apple is going to make a tablet that will run Mac apps and have a pin. And we're ready to compete with that. (laughs) (laughs) And Apple came out with a thing that is not exactly a computer still uh, and definitely wasn't when it came out. Uh, And I've talked a lot on this podcast. I don't have to rehash it. Like I have a reason to use all the processing power that's possible like for for, uh, on an iPad because that means I can add like more audio effects to my tracks and I can, you know, record more things simultaneously. You know, the music ecosystem is this amazing ecosystem where people pay for apps and the apps are amazing and they work together and it's wonderful and it's very different than using a computer. But yeah, as as far as iPad replacing a, a good number of people's computers, that is definitely not happening. So can I just address the revision of history there? First of all, sure. if you saw the iPhone and then you heard Apple was going to make a tablet and you're like, mm. they're definitely just going to make a Mac with a pen, you are on <laughs> drugs. <laughs> like what? There's that's what, what, How did Microsoft miss mobile? They saw the iPhone and they're like, they're definitely going to make a Mac with a pen. That makes no sense. Everyone knew it was going to be a giant iPhone, and that's what it was. Maybe inside Microsoft, they all did what I did, what a ton of people did, is they got a Dell Mini 9 or a Dell Mini 10V and sure. Hackintoshed it. Remember that? Yeah, those? those were great. So that's the other revision. The Atom and Netbooks did not launch with Windows, if yeah. you will remember. The first Netbook, mm-hmm. the Asus EPC, yeah, yeah. where I, at one point I had just the, the flat specs memorized because they put out a new one every day, and that's what Engadget did. We're like, there's an EPC ten oh nine, mostly the same specs. This one's blue. Twenty minutes later, the EPC ten eleven has been released. The same specs. This one comes in a seafoam. Like that's what we did. Like I, I had macros for the spec line of of those netbooks, but they launched with Linux. Mm-hmm. And remember, they had the EPC operating system. It was like a custom version of Linux, and like the CEO of ASUS, Johnny Shi, was like out there being like, "This is a revolution in computing." And we had the moment of like Linux on the desktop is here, and then Microsoft yeah. panicked and let Windows go on it. Yep. Like so, the, I would say just a significant you know rewriting of history there, <laughs> where like well, everyone thought they were going to make a netbook. Like Microsoft didn't even make a netbook. They panicked and allowed Windows to be on netbooks, and then mm-hmm. they held that spec line down, which is why it was flat, because they didn't want to eat the margin. They didn't want more powerful netbooks to steal mm-hmm. the steal share from the mid-priced PCs. Mm. I'm saying, like, I get it. Like, I'm sure that is basically how it went down. I'm just saying, at the edges, like, you really saw the iPhone, you're like, they're definitely going to make a Mac with a pen. (laughs) Anyhow. Yeah. All right, Dieter, what happens to the iPad next? Man, I don't know. Um, we We need to publish another review with, like, specific clear asks so that the next time Apple holds an iPad keynote, <laughs> they mm. respond to them one by one, <laughs> like they did with the last one. What would your ask um, be? Uh, 
By the way, we said Netbook a thousand times. We didn't mention Joanna's name. Joanna was the best Netbook reporter. In, Joanna Stern was the best yeah, yeah. Netbook reporter in the world. I will ask her if my version of history is correct. Anyway, what are we saying? Ask for the iPad. I think they need to clean up the gestures and make them a little bit easier to understand in iOS 14 or iPad OS 2 or whatever they end up calling it. I think that they need to open up a, even more for what apps are allowed to do uh, in the background and what they're and what they're allowed to talk to, uh, because this sort of layering on functionality on top of functionality on top of functionality, I think is it's been great that they've been giving us new stuff that we can do, like hooray USB drives. Uh, but eventually, you hit a point of diminishing returns, and this isn't a perfect analogy, but. The original Mac OS had features laden on to like a pretty basic core until eventually it broke and they had to go to OS X, mm-hmm. right? And that future, I think, might be in the cards for the iPad in a weird way. Again, this is a very imperfect analogy. Do not yell at me. Yeah, they're not going to change think, the kernel of, of iPad OS. Right, but but just layering on, oh, people want to do this thing. We'll, find an, we'll make an API for that. Oh, people want to do this thing. We'll make an API for that. Um, is great for security, but it's not great for creating a general computer platform that uh, people can do new and imaginative things that you hadn't thought of. With computers, and even with phones in some in some ways, but definitely with desktop PCs, people thought up of things to do that the company that made the PC hadn't thought of. And with the iPad, if you want to do something with the whole thing and not something just inside an app, you don't get to think of that. You have to wait for Apple to give you permission to do it. Mm-hmm. Like, well... And, and one of the worst cases in my experience with the, you know, music, especially like if you have samples, right, a very file-based workflow. So there are a ton of file accessing in, there is a ton of file accessing in all these different music apps. And so basically everybody either rolled their own or they'd like point you to like audio share or something like an app that had custom file stuff. So there's like seven different UI paradigms for working with files. And then now there's a real files API. And so that that whole ecosystem, like trying to, to recombine is, is a total mess. So anything where app developers have found a way to work around the fact that Apple wasn't providing an API, uh, they're almost in a worse spot now that Apple has an official API for it because they, they kind of have to support both methods. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, I'm always complaining about, you know, Apple building special hooks for its own platform or like lifting features from the third party ecosystem and building them in and then not letting other people do it. Like, right. So the, the big example is like AirPods. So you cannot build an AirPods competitor because you don't have access to the OS. The worst example is like the flashlight app ecosystem like went away one day, right? Like mm-hmm. Apple's like, we, we just, we should have a flashlight. You can use it from Control Center. Like, here it is. And, like, a bunch of flashlight app developers just, like, disappeared. Like, is that a problem? Like, does the antitrust engine of this America needs to start? So somewhere in there is the right answer. Like, I think that's the spectrum. But if you don't enable people to build those new experiences or to modify the user interface or to add functionality that is totally unexpected or not uh, foreseen – then actually you have nowhere to steal from. Like you don't even get, you can't even get into the trouble, right? Like you can't, you're just like, well, we, I guess, I guess no ideas are forthcoming except the ideas that we have. And that is like a real death spiral for a platform. So that's one thing. It's allow extensibility to the platform. I think that's a big ask. 
That's that's the one that I would want. And they, they've tried it several different ways. You know, you look at the share sheet and you can just like every icon in the share sheet is Apple's like huge attempt to like have extensibility in the way that it wants inside its garden. Uh, Siri shortcuts that, you know, they bought the, the workflow thing and they, they're doing that. Same thing. I just think that all that stuff is um, just not as developer-friendly as, as it ought to be. Like, it's great for writing macros, but, you know, you got to write macros on macros on macros to, to do anything interesting there. Yeah. I think my big ask would be that they... So I, I do use this thing on a plane all the time. I use the multitasking. I, I'm sort of in your camp, Dieter. Like, if you figure it out, like, 25%, it'll, like, it'll be fine. Mm-hmm. If you have any interest in going beyond it, you're like, this is a confusing nightmare. Yep. Right. I can get two apps on the screen at once. Like I can have Slack and Twitter open at the same time. Like, okay, that's like, I'm good on a plane. I'm good. Fine. The second I'm like, oh, I need to open a browser, and the, everything goes away. Yep. And you get one single. And like, I would have preferred this to open where Slack was and like leave Twitter alone. Like, if you're gonna make it insanely complicated, just let it be insanely complicated. Yeah. Right. Like, let that windowing paradigm just be way more freeform than you want it to be, instead of trying to control it with metaphors, I think they'd be way better off. It's the the imposition of their metaphors that just blows the whole thing out of the complexity curve entirely. Yeah. This is how Windows 10 does it. When you open up a new app, it's like, <laughs> which side of the screen do you want to put it on? They don't let you have multiple, like, spaces and blo- Like, unless you want to, you can enable a bunch of spaces. But that's their tablet mode is, like, basic and straightforward, but it totally works. And if it's not enough for you, you just turn it off and you got Windows. Yeah. Maybe they should make a Mac with a pen. <laughs> 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 All right, we're going to take a break. We'll be back to complain more about product design shortly. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor. What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. All right, I promised that we would complain about product design. Do you want to talk about this Google search thing? It's a big deal. It's another one where I'm, I feel kind of like my assumptions got checked. But tell people what's going on. 
So uh, Google uh, rolled out a redesign, and Google's claim is that they they want to uh, enable more trust. And so in order to do that, they put the uh, URLs above the title of the web page, and then they put the favicon for the website next to the URL. And while they were doing it, they're like, well, we've already got this whole like framework of what a search result looks like. Let's just do that for the ad. And so there'll be a big ad word, and then there'll be the ad URL, and it'll blah, blah, blah. But it, that turns out that it made the ads less visually distinct than the rest of the search results. And uh, the entire internet went, uh, what the hell, Google? And within a week, they are like, eh, we're going to experiment some more. And they basically rolled it back, or they just started moving favicons around. And now they're, they're messing with the way that Google search results look. And, you know, I have many feelings about a lot of this, but the, the thing that blows my mind the more I think about it is this is the company that tested 4,000 shades of blue and to figure out what was the right thing that would work. And did they really just roll out a redesign to their most important product by far, the thing that makes the most money, the thing that the most people look at, and they're just like, oops, and then within a week they start screwing with it? Did they not really actually test this thing up the wazoo? Yeah. It's, I mean, they must have, And right? so their argument was this is how it's looked like on mobile for a long time, which right. is a horrible argument because Google results on mobile are just a landmine of, like, UI corners that make Google money. Mm-hmm. Or, like, you know, we needed the answer to be simpler on mobile, so we're not going to send you to a page. We're just going to scrape the data and put it here in a card, mm-hmm. right, and give you, like, the one true result and, like, oh, no, is that the correct result? Is Yelp going to get mad at us today? The answer is yes. Yep. If you're wondering <laughs> if Yelp is mad at Google today, the answer is uh, yes. Yes, it is. Yep. Um, <laughs> they always are. Uh, so I think, like, did they test it? I think they did. And I think what they got was more people click on the ads, and that makes yep. some more money. And so this yep. is what I mean by my assumption being checked. Google's at the point where they're by far the dominant search engine, at mm-hmm. least in America, but everywhere. No one else has any meaningful market share, right? Like, uh, what was it? It was um, David Hanmeyer Hansen at the trial said, if we lose our DuckDuckGo placement, nothing happens. If we lose Google, we lose our business. Yep. Right? So that's like a, that's a big deal for them. So now you're out of market share to conquer. You're out of your, your incentives to capture more users are gone. Your incentive is how do we get more money? Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, if more people click the ads, we get more money. Like, we'll just make the ads look more like the results. And then more people will click the ads because they won't be like, oh, this is that. I should look, I should continue scrolling 14 pages down past all this crap to get yeah. the result I want. What checked my assumption was there's an outcry, but they don't have to do anything because they're still Google. Where are you going to go? You're going to go to Bing? <laughs> but they reacted and they rolled it back, which means they still kind of care a little bit, which like, that's nice. Can I so- give you an even, even worse uh, scenario? You just described the scenario where they're like, ooh, this makes us more money. Let's do it. Ha, ha, ha. Twirl my mustache. What if they just didn't see that it was worse? They weren't twirling their mustache. What if they were just naive? Because this is the thing that I – when I saw it, I was like, oh, this makes sense. I get it. I understand how URLs work. I understand what favicons are. I actually look for favicons. All my bookmark bars are favicons. That's how I identify it. This is how I use the web. I get it. What if everybody at Google is like that far out there and like – engineer webland uh, like me and they t- they didn't realize that this would be a problem let me let me answer that question by flipping this for you okay what if i said all those things but it was facebook 
I realize that your wife works for Facebook. Just say the disclosure, yeah. and then you can answer the question. Yeah, my wife works for Facebook, for Oculus or Division of Facebook. Even with Facebook, I don't know. Do, do you give Facebook the benefit of the doubt? Do you give Google the benefit of the doubt? Which is worse? The answer is that most people like Facebook did this because they're evil. Right? right? Facebook optimized for revenue. That's what they do. They're always doing that. Facebook is bad. Google still to this day has a reputation of like a bunch of lovable idiots who just wanted to make a map. <laughs> Right, and by accident, they scraped everybody's Wi-Fi addresses and Oopsie. put a camera on your face. Like, yeah, right. Like, that's their rep, and I think it is just time for that to be over. Yeah, like I, we know a bunch of Googlers. They are by and large like sincere seeming people. There is no way that you roll out a change of this scale to your yep. largest revenue product, and someone has not modeled the revenue impact of the change. Of course. So one. I use DuckDuckGo. I just want, I, I don't know what where these points lie. I just want to say some stuff. I use DuckDuckGo. It has favicons on it. So when I saw these articles, I'm like, doesn't search already look like that? Two, in my experience of watching people use Google over their shoulder, everybody clicks on the ads. Yeah. Like, I wonder if it's even possible for Google to get a bump in ad click-throughs because they already do get a click through like for every single every single search that is not like because the, the other thing that i think about with google a lot is that google is sort of like a it's not just a search engine it's also kind of a launcher google is kind of how you navigate to you know how do you go to um what's i don't know what's a web a website that is a non-confrontational, a news. <laughs> news, Candy WZ. How do you go to news, right? You Google news and then you click the first link. That's just that's just user interface, right? Yeah. So, so I don't know. There's an aspect where I wonder how big of a blip, how big this actually did, how, how much this actually did change Google's metrics. So this is uh, the theory that Jonah Preddy, CEO of BuzzFeed, uh, said to uh, Peter Kafka and Peter Kafka's uh, uh Code Media Podcast, which you should uh, subscribe to. He's like, you know, what if Google ads are actually bad? What if they're not uh, like evil geniuses, lords of the universe? What if people just click on them because they're at the top and they're actually not that effective? What if they're like, you know, just what if they're just kind of bad yeah. in terms of their like efficacy? I don't, I don't buy it for one second. And I yeah. think like if they are kind of bad and they're kind of ineffective, like Google can't sell them anymore because people can measure the return on their their dollars spent. So Google yep. has every incentive from their actual customers to make the ads perform better. And the best way to make the ads perform better is to make them look like real results, which is why yep. they've gone from having a colored background to not having a colored background to not yeah. being set off to yeah. suddenly having this like tiny little fav icon to like just looking like results. Yeah. Anytime anybody wants to say, well, you should give Google the benefit of the doubt. Just show them that picture of what the, the ad separation has looked like over the years. And yeah. it's like, it's so obvious. Yeah, uh, Google uh, is full of very smart people, and I like I love the notion that Google is mostly lovable nerds who just like want nice things. But the mm -hmm. more we like learn about how they run Android as a platform, the more we learn about how they run Assistant as a platform, the more we see things like this. It's like, oh, you're as ruthless as anybody. You're just your logo's primary colors, and then we think that makes you a little <laughs> bit dumber than normal people. Like, <laughs> <laughs> okay, wait, but this is half. This is half ruthless. Half Google is because uh, I'm testing out this wild product called Google Search that I rarely use. But I just <laughs> searched for news. Wow, there's no better radio than Paul using Google for the first time. <laughs> uh, I searched for news. 
first result, an ad for news.com. And it's got them the breakout, like business, national tech, you know, those ads with a bunch of you stuff. You just search for the word news? With a K. With a K. Oh, with a K. Then okay. news is the first result, but it's an ad. Then yeah. it's top stories, right? These are Google News results, I guess. For news. Then this is the most confusing the, search in the world. Then <laughs> below the fold is New York Post's news story about news, right? Yeah. And then it's news.com. So if news.com doesn't buy this ad, then they are literally below the fold and then yeah. a little bit more to, to be clickable. Can, can, I, can we just take one quick break for the audience? I just want to help everybody understand what happened. Okay. News Corp. N-E-W-S. N-E-W-S, which owns Dow Jones, which owns the Wall Street Journal, which owns the New York Post, which owns a bunch of stuff. Like, it's Rupert Murdoch's thing. Yeah. News Corp. Uh-huh. They launched what I would say is like a like if TechMeme and Vox.com had a panic attack together, <laughs> an aggregator. Like it's like TechMeme for regular news, but it looks wild. Yeah. Called News, K-N-E-W-Z. Yes. This is this is like the talk of the media world yesterday because it, it looks wild. And it's called also, Canoes. And they, had a, they had a press release that literally broke my brain. It was so Paul's like, what if I was searching for Canoes? Mm-hmm. And those uh-huh. that's what you get. And what mm-hmm. I'm saying is if they weren't paying the Google ransom yes. to to have an ad, then they wouldn't even show up on, above the fold on a Google search result. So Google's argument to you is the way that the algorithm works is they cha- made some changes to foreground news and foreground newness novelty. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is also a brand new URL that nobody's linking to. And so um, it, the, there's not a whole lot of information for Google to go on. Over time, canoes.com will be one of the top results, although it won't necessarily be the top result because of an ad that might be they pay for it, or maybe someone will try and conquest it. And it might not be, if it continues to like be a thing that makes canoes, mm-hmm. uh, they might still be stories about canoes. But it not being the top search result is uh, a factor of the way the algorithm works, is Google's claim. Sure. Okay. So the, the real example is Hannah Meyer, David Hannah Meyer Hansen, the guy from Basecamp, at the, at the hearing, the yes. antitrust hearing, he's like, you search for Basecamp. You get ads from Monday.com above Basecamp. And so it's right. a tax. If mm-hmm. I want to be the first result, I got to pay Google the money to just be mm-hmm. the first result for our own company name. Right. And the, uh, which is fine. The conquesting like that has happened forever. The real thing is if someone's violating your trademark and like doing like a bad one, Google will clamp down immediately for its own products and mm-hmm. everyone else has to go through some like Byzantine bureaucracy. Because they don't care, because it's all just money coming in. Anyway, Google search is a confusing landmine of problems, but it's dominant. And so, like, what we have not said here is we should all switch to DuckDuckGo or yes, Bing. By the way, if you look at Bing, Bing is Bing has turned into such a near perfect clone of Google. Like, I'm not even <laughs> sure switching would do anything. Like, you would just have a worse experience with a worse search algorithm. Like, it doesn't matter. DuckDuckGo uh, has three news, any WS results on the top, then the news, which is apparently a band in Buffalo, New York, then the Facebook page for that band, then canoes.com above the fold. Well, I mm-hmm. just searched for DuckDuckGo on Google, and the first result is an ad that DuckDuckGo <laughs> paid for itself for DuckDuckGo. <laughs> so uh, Google's winning, coming, and going. All right. Speaking of web technologies, 
Dieter, I would say that you went through a, a roller coaster of emotions the yeah. other day when Scroll launched. Do you want to explain to people what Scroll is? Scroll is a $5 a month subscription service that uh, if a partner website is partners with Scroll, that website does not serve you ads. Disclosure, Vox Media, which includes The Verge, is a partner. So if you sign up for Scroll, you will not see ads on The Verge. It's not an ad blocker because it, the ads never get show up on the web page in the first place. So when The Verge sees that you are a Scroll user, it's like, oh, when we load this web page up dynamically, magically, we're just not going to put the ads there for you. So I was like, oh, okay, that's cool and interesting. By the way, uh, just to continue that disclosure, neither Dieter nor I made the Scroll deal. Yep. I didn't know it was no idea it was happening. Yeah. Yeah. I learned about it from your tweet about it, Neli, actually. I was like, yeah. what and is I, this? And I learned that it had gone live from someone else's tweet. So <laughs> I, I knew, like, in the back of my head that someone somewhere was talking to Scroll, but I have no idea what the details are. Big company. Yeah. You get, get some insulation. Anyway, mm-hmm. keep going. So the way that it works, and this is, this is one of my early res- revelations, is uh, how does The Verge know that you are a Scroll user? Well, there's a cookie, of course, because everything is a cookie. Um, and what that means is, like, eventually it could break because uh, all the browser makers are trying to change the way cookies work. But that's far off in the future, whatever. But scroll, it pays out based on, you know, what websites it sees you're searching. And it shows you a history of literally every website that you look at. And so here is this tiny startup that you've never heard of who uh, you're paying five bucks a month to, and they get your entire browsing history. Yeah, that seems that seems like they promise they won't sell it. They promise, you know, privacy, et cetera, et cetera. But it also seems like it is a uh, data mining uh, time bomb, I think, is the the phrase I used. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It's like one of those, like, if you run out of money and this doesn't work, what's your most valuable asset? It's like a bunch of targeting data. Yeah. But at the same time, like, we are handing that over to here's a trade off. (laughs) Yeah. Do you want like a bunch of anonymous trackers in Google to have it? Because Google owns the entire ad stack, or yeah. do you want this tiny company run by a CEO who like is down the street over here? And we could probably just go it's, yell a, at him. it's actually it's not or. I think it's and. I mean, who knows <laughs> how many blo- how many trackers they they do turn off some trackers apparently, but yeah. I don't know exactly what. I have ad blocker on. I have third party cookies turned off. I can't see Google fonts, and I also paid for scroll. You should just use links. Like a text-based Unix. Oh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah but, I mean, I'm pretty much, I'm pretty much there. Uh, but like, I, I, you know, I'm relieved to hear that you guys are also concerned about scroll tracking everything because really, they, that's what they, they just have to. It's, it's so tough. Like, I, I felt horrible giving scroll this much information to mm-hmm. be a plugin mm-hmm. that tracks all my browsing so that I don't see ads. But at the same time, I've wanted something like this forever. Um, well, there is something vaguely like this. You know, there's the Brave browser, for example, which blocks ads and may or may not pay creators depending if they signed up with Brave, etc. It's a crypto scam. It's a token. I have, every time yeah. I write about the web, I have I my inbox is filled with angry Brave users who are mad at me for not talking enough about Brave. All of those people also own the Nvidia Shield, and they also all write me at the same time. <laughs> I guarantee you, there's a one-to-one nexus of Nvidia Shield owners and Brave users. In crypto stands. And then one day they're going to light up the crypto mining ability of the NVIDIA shield and it's going to be over. <laughs> There's like a harder problem here, right? If you want to build a business like this yeah. where you pay in some money as a user and then you dole out money to the things you actually visit, uh-huh. which just on its face abstractly seems like a great idea. 
-hmm. There is almost no way to do that without some sort of centralized billing and tracking, right? right? You have to you have to trust somebody somewhere or, or to you deliver your money. Bitcoin, yeah. Lightning, like there are there are, there are promising ways of doing microtransactions without centralized third party. But like so the far, Brave browser, if you if it, it all, if it all gets built into well, your browser and your browser doles out money as it visits websites. Wh why I refer to as something that's not Bitcoin as a scam and something that is Bitcoin <laughs> is not a scam is because most crypto things do are just a shell game and have a centralized third party. In this case, it turns out right. to be the Brave, right. Brave Corporation. Right, but I don't think like, let's say, so to, to, just to do that, you got to put money in, mm -hmm. right? I got to like deliver some currency to you mm -hmm. to somewhere. So it's stored and then it can go out, right? And unless I have like my own physical Bitcoin wallet connected to my computer every time I browse. Like that's that doesn't seem appropriate. And there's no way to do it across platforms. Like you need some you need to put money into the network. And then mm -hmm. you're immediately at that same problem. If you have a lightning wallet, you can pay like uh, you go to uh Yalls is a is a website that does micropayments where you just pay directly to to read a store. You pay like 10 cents and you just pay with lightning and it goes through in a couple seconds. So that's a, a lightning wallet that you have. You have the money you possess the money, and then you pay, and it just goes through right away. But yes, traditionally, with every single microtransaction setup, it is like that, where you have to pay the money in, and it's stored by somebody else, and then they dole out the payments. And I'm saying, I think the, the whole privacy conversation, like another example of the same thing. Let's take it out of that model. I pay the New York Times every month, and I have to log into it all over the place, and it's always forgetting yep. that I logged in. Right, yep. And this is like... A central complaint of every new subscriber on the internet is, mm -hmm. why am I not logged into the Washington Post at this time? I already paid you the mm -hmm. money, just like leave me alone. Why is that? Because Apple is aggressively deleting third-party cookies that store your login information across browsers and states. Like, what are you going to do with that? Right? Like, how do you solve the problem of not tracking you when some of the basic things that every consumer wants require the browser to know who you are, requires the website to requires you to identify yourself to a website and without some kind of tracking somewhere of like just this is who I am and I can tell it to you like it's impossible to build the consumer experiences that we want in the web but then there's like a disaster of privacy next to it it's worse than that because even if you come up with a very uh, in principle uh, smart anti-tracking method, separate from like the payment thing. Uh, so Safari has uh, intelligent tracking prevention. Oh, we actually haven't talked about this story. This is a wild story. Yeah. So it's, um, uh, you know, Safari and Firefox, they both have got different ways to prevent fingerprinting. There used to be this button called do not track. And uh, we're like, oh, cool. If you click do not track, then like, you know, websites will know not to track you and they won't serve you cookies. That'll be great. Well, everyone ignored it. And in fact, it turned out that do not track was another signal that a website could use to identify you via this method called fingerprinting. Because when you visit a website, there's all sorts of information that like gets told. Like it's a... Uh, it, it does support touchscreen. It doesn't support touchscreen. Uh, the the web the browser is this big. It's this resolution. Like all stuff that a web page needs to render, right? Mm -hmm. And enough of that information adds up, and they can identify you. So Google's answer for this is a privacy budget that eventually will stop. But, you know, there's arguments about that happening right now. Firefox's answer was, well, we're just going to make a blacklist or a whitelist, and like. Anybody that's bad can't can't track you. Apple's solution was very clever. They're like, you know, if we just use a whitelist, that'll get gamed. We don't. This privacy budget needs more web standard stuff. We need to fix this problem right now. So what we're going to do is we're going to use uh, on-device machine learning 
and we are going to intelligently try to guess whether or not a website is trying to inappropriately fingerprint a user using machine learning because machine learning is good at identifying stuff over time, right? And great, amazing, super smart, super clever, great technology. Google researchers figured out that it became yet another fingerprint. <laughs> like a, yet another way to track you. Yeah. Uh, so they told Apple and they told Safari and Safari's like, oh shit. Okay. And they fixed it, right? It got fixed in December. Um, and now there's a paper out explaining it. Uh, so even if you can, in principle, get the entire web ecosystem to agree that there should be a payment system. And in principle, you get the entire web ecosystem to agree on a methodology for that system that seems very clever. You're still going to be screwed. <laughs> like there's always it's, – it's an arms race that is just very, very difficult to win. I agree it's an arms race. At the same time, I feel table scraps at this point are just basically I want to reject cookies for everything except the thing that I'm actively logged into right now. Like I really right. just don't – I don't think there are legitimate uses. There are enough – legitimate requirements that you have to have all these cookies to make it worth the risk. Do you understand that rejecting cookies no longer is sufficient to stop you from being tracked? I know it's not sufficient. I'm okay. saying it's just it's just where you start out. It's yeah. like, how do I stop falling onto knives and then that are laying all <laughs> over the floor of my kitchen? Like, okay, well, first we'll first we'll take the knives off the floor of the kitchen. Like that might not be enough, but it's the yeah. first step. First first we'll like we'll stop pouring Crisco on the knives. <laughs> <laughs> so confusing. <laughs> this metaphor is very bad. For like just a huge number of reasons. Uh no, you're right. I I, I just think this tension between what outcomes do people want as just consumers? Remember that I pay for the New York Times, right? Like classic sort of like user story. Like as a subscriber to the New York Times, I would like to be logged in all the time. Okay. Just to get there, you got to put some knives on the ground. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like That's <laughs> yeah. just the first step is like, well, you got to put those knives back all over the floor. And like cool. that I think is, it's the trade off. And I, I think one of the answers here, you could totally decentralize it, but then when someone is a bad actor, like they'll still get to, they'll they'll do this thing where you can like okay, actually intelligent tracking prevention turns itself into a fingerprint over time, right? And mm. they'll just be a bad actor, and then that's an arms race. Or yeah. you could say we need to come up with a system where the centralized players get punished if they become the bad actors. Which is like how you end up at a GDPR situation. You've got right. the data. You are required by law to tell people what data you have. If there's a data breach, you have to respond so fast. Like blah, 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 blah. Yeah. That's the mm -hmm. other solution. I think we're just seeing kind of both models play out. Yeah. I think that I think that solution is the correct one. <laughs> yeah. Well, the the fight over like what should the future of cookies and web browsers be gets back to this earlier discussion we had of do you trust Google or not? Google's like, oh, what if we create a privacy budget and let's work together and let's create new ways to create, you know, ways to like give websites uh, you know, attribution for clicking on ads and blah 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 because we don't want to, we don't want to have this arms race and everyone else is like, yeah, but taking it really slow really benefits you, Google, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and also, so. it's just like there's no market signal for this stuff, right? Like, who is who? How can you even possibly begin to vote with your dollars in this world? Like, you can't. Like, who are you paying? You're the product. So, yeah. like, it's I don't know. Like, that I think is the other side of it is like whether the advertisers. If you talk to 
CMOs in this world, like at CS, I saw a bunch of them. They keep being like, well, you know, the cookie free world is coming. And it's like, that is a big deal for the advertising well, industry. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's the, the, uh, the spirit behind a lot of like open source decentralized efforts are that I'm not, I ultimately don't want it to be up to another company of whether or not I get to be safe online. I want to be able to, on my own, ascertain that I'm safe and maintain my own safety and privacy to the extent that I want it. And I'm not asking for anybody's permission to achieve that on my behalf, because if I wait for that or I wait for a government to order that, it's probably never going to happen sufficiently. The only truly sufficient privacy and safety that I can ever achieve in this world will be something that I basically cobble together on my own. Yeah, I think that's fair. I just think that's a, the level of complexity required to do that is not appropriate for most people. That's, I think that's very much the tension. Okay, we're going to stop this, and then we're going to yell about streaming wars. <laughs> How's that? You ready for this? All right, take a break. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Paul Miller. Hello. Every week. You you insist that this nation come together. <laughs> this is appointment television in an age of cord cutting. It's like it's like we're all we're all in our bedrooms watching our iPads, and Paul's like dinner. Everyone has to come to the kitchen and listen. It's, it's so funny that this started as a joke about holding the country together, and now I'm just like, what if it did hold the country together? Uh, it's called the cloud, but for kids. Oh, kid cloud. Yeah. Um, there's actually two stories on along this line. Um, <laughs> there's this really cool speaker. It's called the Yato Player. It's designed by Pentagram, which, if you remember, are the people who like designed that really cool looking GPU a while back. Um, okay, but so the Yato Player is a, like a connected speaker, but for kids, mm-hmm. and it plays audio based on which NFC card is inserted into it. So like right. the NFC card could do music or or an audiobook or whatever. But importantly, um, the, all the content is in the cloud, right? So okay. the, the NFC card is really just a URL for the for the the media that's in the cloud. Um, so that's got me thinking of um, like what if you had like a like a like a mad DRM apocalypse world where to listen you all the music is in the cloud it's all in Spotify or Apple Music but to listen to it 
you have to drive to Best Buy or um, I, I forget what music stores were called. What, what's a music store name? Sam Goody's. Sam Goody, one? Tower Records. Tower Records. You go to Tower Records and you buy a little NFC token that looks like a CD. Yeah. And then you put it into your computer to unlock the album on Spotify. I thought that would be pretty cool. Anyway, something to think about. A bunch of uh, a bunch of uh, Nintendo Switch games are now. You go to the store to buy a physical box. You open it up, and there's a download code in it, not a cartridge. Yeah. That's amazing. It's not a cartridge. See, that's the thing that there's something so compelling to me right now for whatever reason about like Switch cartridges. But it's very important to me that the data is on the cartridge. Otherwise, it's so meaningless. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always like, I want to buy the physical media, but what I want to consume is the digital version. Mm-hmm. And, like, what if the internet goes away forever? I need right. I need physical backups of this, and it's like, I mean, if the internet goes away for like for that long, like something worse is happening. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I shouldn't I shouldn't be watching Gravity in HD Blu-ray. Like, yeah, <laughs> what yeah. am I doing with my time at the end of the world? Okay, speaking of ways, watching things, Super Bowl, Super Bowl is this Sunday. My team's yeah. not in it, which is heartbreaking. They were supposed to be in it, and they're not. But uh, we did a piece today, Cameron wrote it, how to watch Super Bowl in 4K HDR. Now, if you will recall, earlier this year, Fox started doing Thursday night games in 4K HDR. We wrote a big piece. They're like, we're just doing 1080p in the cameras and upscaling to 4K and sending it out. But it's high res. Upscaling is very good. And it is true. The upscaling is very good. But they're like, the big deal is shooting in HDR. That's the hard part, but we think it's a meaningful upgrade. So I wrote it up, got all excited, and then... Basically, only like FiOS customers with one cable box and Direct TV customers with a, a special box could see it. Comcast yeah. dropped out the night before because they couldn't reach <laughs> a deal, and every streaming platform didn't get it. Right, because it's too hard. Now they're going to do the Super Bowl in it. You can get the Super Bowl streaming in 4K HDR if you have like one of two Amazon Fire devices, like special yeah. in the Fox app. They've listed Roku on their website as being able to get it in 4K HDR, but they told us we're not 100% sure it'll be 4K, but we don't know if we can deliver HDR to Roku. We're working really hard. And then yeah. uh, Fubo TV, a streaming service that you can also pay for if you wish, uh, they're saying they can do it, but no one's ever seen it, so we'll see. Yeah. So if you want to watch Super Bowl in 4K HDR, yeah, you basically need a fire, like one of two fire devices. Mm-hmm. You with me so far? I'm with you so far. Okay, you know what you can't use? You can't use the Apple TV. No, you cannot. So this is all related to like a very quiet, very nerdy format war that is like the death of me. Why can't you get it on the Apple TV? Because Fox is shooting in a format called HLG, Hybrid Log Gamma, which okay. is developed by NHK in Japan and BBC in the UK. It is an HDR format that is like well-suited to broadcast television because you can basically you make a stream that is downward compatible. Okay. Right. So it works live and then you send the same signal to SDR TVs and HDR TVs. The SDR TVs can just show you SDR and HDR TVs will figure it out. That's HLG. Yeah, yeah. Okay. HDR 10 in Dolby Vision, this is a true, I'm going to say this phrase now. They're known as PQ formats. PQ, PQ stands for perceptual quantizer. Okay. They require metadata stream. Sure. Okay. Right, there's a different thing, and they they're not down compatible. So you got to send two different streams. Almost nothing supports HLG. The Apple TV doesn't support it. 
Roku's done support. Like it's a, a just another format to support. Right. But now we're in the world where we want to watch the Super Bowl in HDR. You got to figure out how to support it. So you can like convert it. You can like do all this other stuff. Apple doesn't allow you to like do any hardcore video to code in their boxes. That's why YouTube is not in 4K on the Apple TV because YouTube wants to use its codecs, uh, yep. Apple's codecs. So Fox is like ready. They've like hacked the Fire TV to make it work. They don't really know if they can get it there on the Roku, and they're not even yeah. trying it with Apple because they have to do this format conversion. I don't think Apple's going to let them. Yeah. Can well, I, can I can I make you even angrier? Yes. You know those magic eye posters? Oh my god. <laughs> where like you look at it cross-eyed and a picture pops out. You know when you're like standing at the mall and there's a group of people staring at the magic eye posters and someone's like, "I see a sailboat." And the next person's like, "I see a sailboat." And then I'm the third person and I say, "Yeah, I see it too, but I'm totally lying." That's how I feel about HDR. Ooh. You got to come over. I have an HDR TV. I mean, we were at like CS together. <laughs> There's one place you can see it. It's at CS. Like eye-searingly bright. Uh, so I did eventually get uh, a TiVo Edge. Why are you such a – TiVo – why do you still buy Because I refuse to get the Verizon cable box. Like it's just okay. not going to happen. <laughs> get out of my face with that thing. So I got the TiVo Edge, which can decode HLG, and I watched some games in in HDR. Okay. It is, if you are paying attention, remarkable. Mm-hmm. You actually see more detail. The helmets look beautiful. But, like, data, come on. <laughs> like, <laughs> what are we doing? Uh, it's not, like, brighter. It's just, like, there's more detail. And it's a wider right. color gamut. Right. See, there's more, there's actually more color information coming to you. Oh, by the way, uh, just to make this even more complicated, I have this TiVo Edge. Mm-hmm. What's the big selling point of TiVo Edge? It has Dolby Vision. But Dolby didn't tell anyone that there's actually two versions of Dolby Vision. <laughs> this is a true story. One is decoded on device and one is decoded in the TV. Sony was like, we're only going to support the one that's decoded on device because okay. of some latency issue. Yeah. TiVo didn't know. Like, they didn't know. So it doesn't support <laughs> Dolby Vision on my TV. And all the support <laughs> forms like, what's up with it? So like, oh, yeah, we just found out about these Sony TVs. Microsoft had to do a, a quiet update of the Xbox to support Sony. Apple yeah. had to do a quiet update of the Apple TV to support Sony. Amazing. Like, they just made a custom Dolby Vision profile for Sony and like didn't tell anyone about where, where some of the decode goes. And so now there's like there's even inside of this bad format war, there's yet this other X factor of like, what if Sony was a little bit dumber than everybody else? Wait, wait, <laughs> when when there was Blu- Blu-ray versus uh, what, what is <laughs> what does Fox Sports get out of using a weird H- HDR format that nobody else uses? And also, would it kill them to transcode it on their end and send out like a you know a, a it could have a minute delay on it? A different stream for, for the Super Bowl for the plebs. Do you know how many like gamblers would die if they had a minute delay of the Super <laughs> okay, Bowl? Okay, well they just they they can be warned. <laughs> uh, have you guys ever watched the Super Bowl streaming in like an apartment building? It's amazing because there is a delay, and so you're like watching the game, and then you just hear somebody across <laughs> the way screaming, just screaming. I know like, that's the, oh, Okay, that's let's amazing. See what uh, so the benefit is. Sony makes a lot of the broadcast equipment in the world, and they are all in on the broadcast side on HLG. Right. Right. So this is like a standards battle that's happening with a bunch uh, of buyers over there. And so like the broadcast world is quickly standardizing around HLG because you need to do less work, and you can send out one signal that works for both sides, mm-hmm. is what I am told. 
I mean, do, have I talked and to... And Fox is just like, whatever you say, Sody. Well, I mean, they got to so, like, buy stuff. I mean, look, <laughs> like, here's here's a solution. They need to use some AI to oh solve the I'm format dying. problem. I'm dying. <laughs> and then they can get it up to 8K, and then you can watch it over 5G. <laughs> That's horrible no, what the, what's, no, what's crazy to me is that obviously... You all, everybody has the same televisions. They're not saying you have to buy this or that television. This is a box that is going to transcode this HLG stream into something that the television can handle. So I'm just asking kindly <laughs> that Fox does that earlier on in the chain before they send it to their app. So I think Fox is doing it earlier on in the chain because it says, Cameron's post says the Fire TV Stick 4K and the Fire TV Cube will get the 4K HDR10 feed via the Fox Sports app. They can deliver it to those. They should yeah. be able to deliver it to everybody else. But there, there's got to be some underlying technical reason. Uh, and I'm pretty confident it's like they want to make sure they get it right. And they, they can do more with what are effectively Android apps on the Fire platform right. than you can maybe do with Roku or depend on the processing power of a Roku. And right. then you are somewhat... Not even somewhat. You are extremely constrained with what you can do on the Apple TV. So you're saying the NVIDIA Shield's going to knock this out of the park. The NVIDIA, <laughs> as soon as you turn off your Bitcoin renderer and switch that processor power over. Renderer. I don't know. <laughs> whatever, whatever they do, man. <laughs> I said that just to get angry emails know, from both so Bitcoin well. people and NVIDIA Shield people. <laughs> <laughs> That's if a true honeypot of a phrase right there. <laughs> <laughs> NVIDIA Shield Bitcoin Renderer. Come at me. <laughs> All right, Dieter, you want to, you we did not talk about streaming more stuff last week with Comcast. There's ATT earnings this week. There's yeah. just a lot going on in, in with the legacy companies streaming stuff. Oh, and I and I have a fact to share, which I think is really interesting, but you go tell me about ATT first. So they, it, there's, it's earnings week. We talked about Apple earnings. Everybody else had earnings. Uh, AT&T's earnings were basically, yeah, we took a $1.2 billion revenue hit that we won't normally have to do in order to secure content because we're really going to like make HBO Max a thing. And then uh, Julia Alexander listened to the call, and she was tweeting it and talking to me about it in Slack. And like every question was like, I don't understand what you're doing. <laughs> and AT&T was like, well, you know, like, HBO is going to be a thing, and then 5G is going to be a thing, and then uh, they're, they're, we're not going to say that there's going to be a super cycle, but we're not not going to say there's not going to be a super cycle. And oh, my God. a super cycle. Well, you know, people want HBO, and so they set up for AT&T, and then they want 5G to get the HBO faster, so then they buy a new phone, and now they've got a new phone, and if they got a new phone, they're obviously going to want to watch some HBO because they got a new phone, so that's cool, and it'll create a whole, like, virtuous cycle. And it's like, you are making a giant almost bet the company bet that there is some sort of synergy between HBO Max and 5G and buying a new phone. And I just don't believe that any one of the three of those connecting things in that circle are real, much less all of it together creating a flywheel. Yeah. I mean, I'm an AT&T customer. Mm -hmm. I also pay for HBO. Yep. I uh, somewhat unsurprisingly own a phone. Yeah. Uh, nope. <laughs> like, I mean, okay, you can already see the ads, right? Like, that's yeah. like some business logic. Imagine the ad, yeah. right? Buy the new Samsung Galaxy S20 5G Plus and get a year free of HBO. Yep. That's what they can do, right? Mm -hmm. There's not much more they can do. 
But so the the thing, and this this comes from um, Carl Bode's article on The Verge uh, today, the day we're recording this. You should go find it. It's very good. Uh, it's uh, titled AT&T Tried to Buy Out the Streaming Wars and Customers Are Paying for It. Made me realize that a few years ago we all won because we stopped paying subsidies for our phones. That Like the cost of the phone wasn't built in. We didn't have two-year contracts. We got much clearer pricing. Well, the subsidy for your physical phone got replaced for, with a subsidy for some random streaming service you may or may not want. Yeah. Right, you're like it. Don't think that you're getting AT and T or AT and T. Don't think you're getting Apple Music for free on Verizon. Right, you're, it's free, but is it free? Yeah. And don't think that HBO Max is going to be provided free to you, AT and T customer. Is it free? Is it really free? Uh, and so, like, you, you you can't not pay for these streaming services if you have a phone now. Verizon it's and wild. Disney Plus is another good example. Yep. Um, yep. Quibi, uh, we free for T Mobile customers. In case you yep. were wondering about that one. Uh, there you go. Netflix, T-Mobile bundles Netflix in. Same deal. Mm-hmm. Netflix gets paid for those subscribers. So that money comes from somewhere. Going through that list, I don't know who, which side is paying for each one. The carriers are paying it, the streaming services. So Verizon wanted the edge of having Disney Plus for free. Yep. I, I assumed that maybe it was like Disney wants to get it in front of a bunch of eyeballs. No, no, no. Um, the way these contracts usually work, I am told. I don't know how all of them work in, in like specifically, but they mm-hmm. negotiate what's called a wholesale rate. So there's the retail rate uh, for like, yeah. for Disney Plus, like whatever. Uh, Verizon, you know, they guarantee some minimum number of signups. They get a wholesale rate on them, and then if people actually sign up, they pay the wholesale rate. Is that how all of them specifically work? I don't know the details. That's usually the shape of it. So what's really interesting about this, I am told, Comcast, which owns NBC Universal, which has its, you know, they. Air investor in Vox Media, blah blah. My understanding is that the the little bit of competition from AT and T and five G and the shenanigans of like home internet and bundling and all this stuff has yeah. gotten Comcast to the point where they're going to start to say we treat all internet traffic the same. Like mm. you can sign up for this crazy mobile service on five G that's maybe just as fast or faster than the wires in your house, but. AT&T will throttle the video and do this weird bundle pricing and blah, blah, blah. And we won't. Remember us? Good old trustworthy wires in the ground Comcast. Would you look at that? And it's like the tiniest bit of competition <laughs> has pushed Comcast to be like, yeah, we're going to go ahead and advertise net neutrality. So I'm trying to get them to say that to us like from an executive on the record, but that's what I have been told. I think that's super interesting if that's the message they go out with. I, I'm ho- I hope they do, right? Because I think that'd be great for everybody. But um, it's funny how, you know, when when you suggest to the world that Comcast would somehow zero rate NBC's Peacock, they're like, no, 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 we won't do that. We want we want our internet service to be differentiated from the weird shenanigans of the mobile carriers, because every mobile carrier does weird bundle pricing, net neutrality garbage. Mm-hmm. So they're like, what if you had pure internet? Which I think is like cool. But well, they got to actually commit to it, which is the thing I'm pushing. Maybe this is a bit of a tangent, but is that, you know, there's always these ads for like, you know, mobile for seniors. And it's like a phone carrier where like the, it's like $20 a month for a phone plan and you can get the flip phone with the big buttons. It's like, like, what's the catch? Like, and so is, is there, because I've, I've known that MVNOs often have a, in a sense, like less priority than the traditional customer. So maybe they get worse service. And I thought that was the main catch for why an MVNO could offer cheaper than Verizon, Verizon service. But is it also the case that these carriers are spending so much on content now? Um, No. So the MVNO, 
I've learned about this more because of the T-Mobile Sprint deal, mm-hmm. right? Where T-Mobile and Sprint will combine, and then Dish Network will stand up a fake fourth carrier that is really just a T-Mobile NVNO while it builds its own network. And so, like, the argument is MVNOs have traditionally not worked. Like, if you just wanted to start your own carrier and your first move was to go to T-Mobile and buy a bunch of access, you would lose because T-Mobile would make sure that the rate that you pay them is enough to price you above them, right? That's just the natural – why would they let you compete on price with them? There's no reason. Like, head on for the same customer. So most MVNOs are customers that the carriers don't want or are small enough so they can be over there or that are too hard to service. So what, what's like the most successful MVNO is like Boost. Boost is like mostly lower income people, right? And they're like, t- it's too hard to get the money out of them. Like they don't want to sign up for prepaid or postpaid contracts. They don't want to sign prepaid. Like that's why they're mostly prepaid MVNOs. Because T-Mobile as a business is like, we'll just be guaranteed some money from this MVNO, and they can handle the hassle. Senior citizens who don't want the fanciest phone, they just want a flip phone, whatever, the MVNO can serve them at a lower rate because T-Mobile's like, we can't foist Quibi upon them. Like, we'll just like take some margin and not have to worry about that customer. We won't deal with the cost of it. No, that, that was a pretty cogent explanation, but I think we could do better. I think if you're listening to this, please pull over in your car. <laughs> And a tweet at a remarkably handsome and cogent actor, Ryan Reynolds, who is a co-owner of Mint, uh, the MVNO, and ask him to come on the Vergecast and explain how MVNOs work. work uh, yes, please. Ryan Reynolds on the Vergecast talking about the economics of the wireless industry would be incredible. We will happily shill his aviator gin. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been a gin fan, but I could, I'll make an exception. Yeah, pull over and ask Ryan Reynolds to come on the Vergecast. Two or him and Ajapaya at the same time. That's what that's what we're going oh for. My God, do you think they've had a meeting? <laughs> like, <laughs> like Deadpool rolls into Pi's office and is like, "I'm starting an MVNO." Um, I, the the part of it that I think we're kind of circling around here is like they have now all spent so much money to do this thing, right? To 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 marry content with the network because they all want to be fancier than just a pipe. That they have to pay it off. AT&T in particular has to pay off this bet. It's existential for AT&T. And that means they are going to do the scammiest things in the world to get those HBO Max dollars out there. And I think, like, what's I've said it before, but what's, like, the vergiest story in the world? Like, all of our threads come together. Our hardware review program, our policy conversations, the interface covering disinformation. It's at the end of next year... They're launching HBO Max in May. Give it a year, right? We'll see what happens at the beginning. But by the end of next year, you will reasonably be in a position where when you buy a phone from AT&T, it comes preloaded with CNN, and CNN will stream for free, and Fox News will not, right? And like you will just be in a position where one of the largest access corporations in the world is preferentially pricing one news outlet over another, and they're ideologically opposed in a time when, like, that polarization is worse than ever. Like, Ezra Klein, our colleague, just wrote a book called Why We're Polarized, and, like, this is one of the reasons, because we've actually, we're going to price information differently. And I think that's, like, it is just worth thinking about. Like, you're going to buy the $400 LG mid-range Android phone from AT&T. It's going to come preloaded with their media, and if you want to consume any other media, you're going to have to pay extra in some, in one way or the other. And I think that's like, 
we haven't quite grappled with it yet. We haven't thought that through enough. It's like everything I've been yelling about for years. I'm sorry, people in your cars, you like heard it before. This is not surprising to you, but it's it's here. It's like it's way more real than I think people are giving that moment credit for. Why do you think Trump like wanted to stop the murderer? Because he is the one who's like, man, that mid-range Android phone is gonna suck. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, but that's strange. Like it ha- it's not quite here yet. Like they're not they're not launching until May. Peacock is not launching until later this year. Like we'll see what they do. But you you have a bunch of big big media companies that are actually parts of big, big ISPs, and everyone's got to pay that debt. And like Comcast is raising its rates. AT&T is raising rates on Uverse and DirecTV subscribers. Like They're trying to make up the money while people transition to streaming, and it's like causing a little death spiral because raising rates means people quit, and that's like right. That's going to catch up to them in a, in a really big way. I just think it's interesting if you're going to spend this much money, like it seems to to open uh, the gateway for somebody to, I don't know, space internet or something, something that isn't encumbered with all these extras uh, to, to, to truly be competitive. Uh, I have no idea if that'll, that will happen, but it seems like there's an opportunity here if they're truly going to jack prices to give people things that they don't want. Yeah. I mean, we'll see, or, I mean, their argument is that this is what people want, right? Like, what people, I mean, the classic cable pricing in America for like 20 years was the triple play, right? You're going to you're gonna pay Comcast, they're going to deliver you a, a medium fast internet connection, a phone line, and cable television. And they're going to be your provider of those things. And everyone wants that bundle. We've moved all the video to the internet, so you don't need the one part of it anymore. But you're still getting the bundle. And it's just like, you're just back at it again. And the question is... Is that what people want, or do they want more a la carte access? Like, I don't, I don't know the answer. But that bundle is definitely getting reformed, so, except for the phone line part. By the way, you can, you can, if, you've, if you've, in fact, tweeted Ryan Reynolds uh, about the Vergecast, you may now drive again. <laughs> <laughs> Are you done? Yeah, I mean, look, I think there's the, the one part of it that I think is better than the old bundle, for sure, is you can quit way easier, right? Like, you don't want, I encourage you, do this right now. Just go cancel your Disney Plus subscription. It feels great. And then you can sign up again tomorrow, right? Like, that is way easier than canceling HBO for traditional cable. Right? My whole and, plan with Picard is to wait until I can, I've got the time to binge it in a week and I'll sign up for CBS All Access again for a week and then cancel. Yeah. I'm excited. And so I think that that is different and will lead to different consumer behaviors. But, yeah, that bundle is it's just like it's barreling towards us built into access because they got they got to pay it off. Like I said, I, I think, like, the – the sort of consumer side of it makes sense. Like everyone kind of knows what AT&T is up to. They have to because AT&T is saying it all the time. Like they have to tell their investors. But the part where, you know, the largest wireless carriers in America are excusing their preferred services from data caps and making you pay for the other ones is like a little dicier. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to blow your mind real quick. Uh, w- the business model here is paying for access to infrastructure and then getting uh, content as a bonus. Sounds a lot like uh, Amazon Prime. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right, like, where's Apple going to fit into that? Like, are they going to pay Verizon AT&T for sponsored data the, the way that those companies would want? Where's ne- How's Netflix going to survive in a world where, where they have to pay for uh, peerage fees? Like, that's all just up in the air. I got to say, Amazon's really trying my patience lately. I feel like all the good shows, all the good murder mysteries are, like, you got to pay for, like, BritBox or something like that. Like, the actual Amazon Prime is pretty bare. 
And I don't know. It seems like they're trying to upsell me. It's like I already pay you, I don't know, more than $100 yeah, a year. That's the, that's where you're talking about it. Stop upselling me so hard. That's their – actually, Ronnie Mola at Recode wrote a great story that's like Amazon Prime Video is also has a bunch of like user-submitted videos in it. And so like yeah. the long tail of that library is just a bunch of really wild crap. And you should go read it. It's on, it's on Vox slash Recode. Okay, that's, that's it. There's enough. There's a folding Samsung phone. Yeah. yeah. But we're not going to talk about it at this time. No. It's there. <laughs> Next week. You just think about it. It will be discussed. <laughs> you just think about what you did. <laughs> uh, you can tweet at us, Dieters, at Backlon. Paul's Feature Paul. I'm at Reckless. We love hearing from you. Dieter, tell them about your newsletter. Uh, I have a newsletter. It's at theverge.com slash newsletter. It's called Processor. I uh, write about computers. It's very good. I enjoy it. I enjoy it a lot. All right. That's it. We'll see you next week. Rock and roll. Paul. Snip, snip. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. 